You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me this evening to the book of Job, and we'll be looking together at chapter 32. Job chapter 32, you'll find this on page 438 of the Pew Bible. We're going to cover chapters 32 through 37, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm sure you're happy about that. But chapter 32, we're going to read together. Page 438 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Well, Job and his three so-called friends have completed their cycles of speeches. They debated what they believed to be the reasons for Job's sufferings. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar concluded that impenitence was the cause. Job maintained that he hadn't done anything to warrant such punishment. They were unsuccessful in convincing one another of their respective views, and so they've exhausted their rationale, and there is nothing more for them to say. And at this point, another person, of course, joins the discussion to express his opinion. The name Elihu means, he is my God. And apparently, he was related to Abraham. He was the son of Barakel, who was descended from Buz. 
And this man, Buz, was the second son of Nahor, who was Abraham's brother. So that simply means that, if I'm right, Elihu was Abraham's grandnephew. He was a bystander who had been present all along, listening to their various speeches. And he was a young man of keen perception and a penetrating intellect. And as is so often found in gifted young men, he was also a bit arrogant. He was willing to say what he believed true, even if he, perceived, he was perceived as being proud. Until now, he had remained silent, but he couldn't keep quiet any longer. Having patiently waited for his time, he now expresses his view, and he was angry, and he had a relatively high view of his own importance. His aggravation arose from both Job and their, his friends for failing to resolve this issue. He's angry with Job because he justified himself rather than God, and in his view, Job claimed far too much for himself and not enough for the Lord. And he might have a point. With the friends, he's angry since they blamed Job but couldn't answer him. They tried to convince him of his guilt, but he maintained his integrity throughout. And so after the introduction, Elihu's monologue covers no less than five chapters. In a cultural context in which age was respected, you can imagine how he hesitated to speak. But since nothing they said satisfied him, he was ready himself to talk. After all, as he now realizes, wisdom is not only with those who are old. He listened attentively, but he heard nothing said that was convincing, and so fed up with their debates was he that he simply had to join the dialogue. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, he said, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. And in preparation, he pledges impartiality and truthfulness without flattery. And within his speech, there are four different segments, or what we might call four different subspeeches. The first of those subspeeches is addressed directly to Job in chapter 33. He affirms his own sincerity and acknowledges his dependence upon the Lord. Like Job himself, Elihu is a creature brought about by the power of God. He says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The two men are therefore on equal footing, both of them human beings. And Elihu believes that he can set Job straight and give the rationale for his misery. You see, that's the difference between modern preaching and the Middle Ages when they preached. The modern hearers oftentimes go to church so that they can feel good about themselves. In the Middle Ages, worshipers went to church to find a rationale for their misery. They were realists living in a world that's fallen. We might even say today many of those who attend church are spiritual snowflakes. So Elihu addresses Job's complaint, claiming that he's without transgression. Behold, in this you are not right, Job. I'll answer you, for God is greater than man. And perhaps this best summarizes, I think, the first subspeech to Job. Job, you're not right. Like me, you're a sinner, and God is great. And maybe that's the most important point that's made in that whole chapter. God is great, He's wise. He's all-powerful. He's absolutely sovereign. 
Why do you contend against him, says Elihu? He's too great to be called to account. Job, you accuse him of indifference, but he's actually involved in your life. Indeed, he speaks in various ways. Elihu tells him that God speaks in dreams and visions and warnings, and sometimes those warnings come in the form of trials and afflictions. That's a warning. This is something, again, I think modern man refuses to acknowledge and to accept. The judgments endured by individuals and nations are simply divine warnings. All diseases and disasters and wars and economic downturns warn of final judgment. God cautions the world. That's what he's doing. He's cautioning the world that immorality and disobedience evokes divine wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as one powerful example in history of that very truth. Jude says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You remember when Jesus was asked about those worshipers that were killed by Pilate? Or the 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those tragedies were not random misfortunes, but warnings from heaven. That's what he was saying. It's no different today. Hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, covid God is warning the world that unless it repents, it will likewise perish. What a great mercy it is, isn't it? And few recognize it as such, but trials and temptations and tragedies are merciful because they're warning the world. God does it so that sinners will turn from their evil ways and repent. Job 33:18, Elihu says, God keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. And that positive view of suffering is in contrast to the negative view of the three friends. So Elihu goes on to say that divine justice and mercy help express the greatness of God. There's plenty of evidence in Elihu's subspeech to prove that God is just. But nestled, in the middle of his first subspeech is a statement of mercy. It's fascinating. Elihu anticipates the great mediator of the new covenant, who's one of a thousand. The Lord Jesus would come to declare, verse 23, to man what is right for him. One of a thousand. Can there be any doubt that the mediator of which he speaks is Jesus? Verse 24, he's merciful to him. He's gentle and kind and full of compassion. The mediator says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I found a ransom. And Jesus Christ is the ransom. That's why Job called him earlier his redeemer. Because he is both the purchaser and the price. Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is the eternal Son of God incarnate, the power and the wisdom of God. And that's why the Lord Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He died to make the propitiation for the sins of his people and to reconcile us to his Father. And whether he realized it or not, Elihu was predicting the work of Christ. Way back here. You see, when God takes away the cause, he can then remove the effect. You get what I'm saying? When God takes away the cause, he can remove the effect. That's what Elihu mentions in chapter 33, verses 25 and 26. The mediator comes, he pays the ransom, and then he says, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. When God takes away the cause, sin, he removes the effect, misery. And in Christ, God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And therefore, he can restore or at least promise to do so spiritual health, inward joy, and right standing with God. That's the order that was exemplified in his public ministry, isn't it? First, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And they all looked at him like he was nuts. Then he said, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Take away the cause, take away the effect. That's the method and the order of God's gracious recovery of sinners. And so Elihu, a sinner, believes in the ransom and the righteousness being restored we see God's face not with dread or foreboding, but we see his face with a shout of joy. And that's good news for sinners. I don't know if Elihu knew what he was saying, but he was predicting the Lord Jesus Christ. But then his second subspeech turns from Job and addresses the three friends. He calls them wise men. We're not sure if he does this sincerely or sarcastically, but either way, he disparages Job, whom he says scoffs and befriends evildoers at the end of 33 and the beginning of 34. Because you see, Job claimed to be in the right, and yet for some reason, God afflicted him. He says Job is wrong for saying it's of no use being good or delighting in God. And what follows is a vigorous theodicy. Do you know what I mean by that? A theodicy, a defense of God. 34.10, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. He doesn't pervert justice, but he repays every man according to his due. He wields all power. He has all knowledge. He is impartial as a judge. But while Elihu defends the divine justice, notice that he says nothing of grace. This is one of the problems that plagued the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They pressed obligations of the law more strictly and far more severely than God himself. That was the Pharisaic problem. And meanwhile, they refused to allow for mercy or grace or compassion. And that's a ditch into which we must not fall, because that ditch leaves no room for mercy. And you and I both need it. So Elihu's second subspeech defends God's justice, but says nothing about grace. 
His third sub-speech then again addresses Job and takes up his complaints. And in the midst of his severe suffering, Job expressed two primary thoughts, two thoughts on Job's mind. First, he saw himself as a sincere worshiper who'd been deprived of his rights. That's one. Second, Job often wondered aloud if godliness was of any advantage. Why did I worship every single Sunday? Why did I deny myself and follow after God? So again, Elihu criticizes him for claiming that godliness is of no value, 35, 2, and 3. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it's my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? And Elihu goes on to highlight the majesty of God who is greater than all. God is infinitely greater than any creature, whether it's angelic or human. He says, look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. Nothing we do can help God. Nothing we don't do can hurt God. He's the God who makes man wise and he's the God who hears prayers of his people. But he abhors and he ignores the prayers of sinners because of their pride, verse 12. And this is true as far as it goes, Elihu. But Elihu, you're very rigid in your orthodoxy. Elihu, you don't make the same mistake as Job's so-called comforters. You know there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and its penalty. But Elihu, you bristle at Job's insistence that his suffering is not guilt-related. First, Job is a sinner like everyone. But second, God has a purpose in suffering. But then finally, Elihu mentions something about the rich mercy of the Almighty, finally, in 36, verses 6 and 7. This is what he says. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, the moon coming around the earth. God never takes his eyes away. God watches over his people. He treats men as they deserve to be treated. And in one of the more penetrating insights of Elihu is found in chapter 36, 15, where he says, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Did you hear what he said? God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. And here what he's doing is musing over the purpose of God to overrule evil for good. Through suffering comes healing and deliverance. And it seems paradoxical. But scripture says that God is able to bring good out of evil, to use afflictions and car accidents and surgeries and all kinds of things for his purpose. Think of Eustace Scrub. Do you remember him? The character in Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader? He tried to shed his dragon's skin, but only Aslan could do it with his sharp claws. And it was painful, but it was liberating, and it was refreshing, and that's how God works. He uses our afflictions and our sufferings to deliver us from sin and misery. Isn't that what Paul indicates when he's writing to the Corinthian church? we confessed it together. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's suffering and pain. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Suffering. In other words, it is largely through suffering that God transforms his saints. It's not on the mountaintop. It's in the valley. It is by and through the daily cross that you and I grow and become more like Christ. And that is so countercultural. Modern man seeks a pain-free existence. That's freedom. Any talk of the cross sounds foolish to him. It makes no sense at all. But the Christian knows that God's fatherly wisdom knows best. And he employs our sufferings in order to conform us to Christ's image. And that was a great insight that Eliu brought forward. Suffering is endured for far more than guilt. It's not just cause and effect. God has a sovereign purpose for your affliction and mine. He lovingly and he wisely and he faithfully uses it to mold our character and to build our faith. And so he concludes this long-winded five-chapter speech by extolling the greatness of God. He's righteous, he's mighty, he's exalted in power, and he's eternal, chapter 36, verse 26. He scatters the lightning, he speaks in the thunder, he governs the rain and the snow, and his works are great, and he's the God of the storm. He's the majestic God. His voice thunders. And Elihu is right. He does great and incomprehensible things, things that we can't even begin to fully understand. And all in all, God's works are wondrous and he's perfect in knowledge. And clearly he's in control, even though this fallen world seems confusing and harsh. After all, he is the Almighty. Isn't that what we believe? the Almighty. He's great in power. And I think his closing statement in chapter 37, verse 24, is very similar to that which was drawn by wisdom in chapter 28. At the end of chapter 37, after this long-winded speech, this is what Elihu says. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. You see, that's the duty of all men, and it's the distinct privilege of the elect. The Almighty is to be feared. He who is clothed with awesome majesty. And as we learned before, it is wise to fear the Lord and to live life before him. Only by sincere obedience and utter dependence on his grace can we do so. Wisdom is not mere knowledge. It's not going to college, although knowledge is involved. Wisdom is a way of life. We do as in his sight, whatever we do in his service. And ultimately, this means following Jesus Christ as a devoted disciple. Because the devil challenged God, claiming that Job served him for his benefits. And that's it. And by preserving Job, by divine grace, the Lord proved that the devil is a liar. Job lost everything but his life, remember? Everything. And still he served God out of love for God. His only reward was true fellowship 
with the true and living God, a gift of grace. So I think in closing, we can say that we're reminded once again of God's sovereign purpose in the events of life. There is nothing you and I experience that's not ordained by his decree. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And sometimes trials and afflictions are judgments against the wicked. They are simply the beginnings of their torments, which they shall endure after death. But God also afflicts for purposes that often go beyond punishment. They serve to purge our corruption and to cultivate our godliness and to sanctify our souls. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So those three friends were wrong, my friends. Suffering is not always the result of wickedness. With respect to believers, they can be proof of God's fatherly care. Just the opposite. The best of Christians need chastisement. The best Christian in this room needs chastisement. All of us have faults that need to be corrected. We should be worried if he leaves us alone. That's proof of illegitimacy. But if he disciplines us and treats us like a faithful and wise and loving father, we can be sure of his love. So let's embrace the teaching of Scripture by fearing God and shunning evil. After all, as I said, that is the duty of man. It is the privilege of the Christian, and it's the way to glorify the Lord. And the implanted fear of God is at once a bridle to sin and a spur to holiness. By his cross, the Lord Jesus redeems a sinner and declares him a saint. And by the regenerating power of his spirit, he changes the slave into a son. And he enjoys the filial confidence, and as a Christian, he forsakes his former ways, and he's careful in all things to please God. Is that you? And is that me? Careful in all things to please God, and sorrowful when in anything he's offended? I hope so. It's not our duty, but it is our privilege, our immense and blood-bought privilege to walk humbly, faithfully, and sincerely with our Heavenly Father. May we do so by the grace of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize our need and our dependence upon the Savior. We think of Elihu, and we're grateful for the insights that he brings to bear. And yet your ways are incomprehensible and so far above us. We ask that you'll continue to teach us and indeed help us to express that filial fear and to shun evil, which apparently is wisdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.